From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxai, and this is ReSound. Pull out a little bit of color, a little bit of color, just like so, and then tap it. That assures a nice even distribution of color all the way through the bristles, see there? Color strongly influences our daily lives. It can appeal to us pleasantly, make us feel hot or cold, gloomy or gay. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little dabs of audio color we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on, then play you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Pull out a little bit of color, a little bit of color, just like so, and then tap it. Instead of seeing color, I can hear color. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo. It started to even look like a triple rainbow. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. Electric beige. Um, yeah, electric beige. I come from a family of artists. I'm not one, but I like to pretend to be. That way, I can justify indulging my secret obsession the art supply store. The art supply store is a chapel, a sacred homage to order and possibility. But what I love most about the art supply store are the displays, peacockian arrangements of color in rows from Roy to G to Biv. Pencils standing at attention, tips up in salute, each topped by a dot of exacting color. Tubes of paint lying on their side, a broad band of luscious color splashed across their bottom like a skirt. Markers like swizzle sticks whose shiny plastic cases scream candy-like color good enough to suck on. And don't even mention a 64 box of crayons. I go weak in the knees. There is something so mesmerizing, so satisfying, so soul-stirring and pleasing about color that we had to make a show about it. Today on ReSound, a purple hotel, a family who argues over their skin color, a singing rainbow, and more. Stay with us. A little bit of color, just like so, and then tap it. The original color palette is, of course, the rainbow. It is the simplest, yet most magnificent example of the color spectrum. And the rainbow has been appropriated by many over the years. Perhaps it makes you think of little girls' bedrooms and leaping unicorns or gay rights. Or maybe, just maybe, you'll always associate the rainbow with this guy, like Resound producer Katie Mingle does. Whoa, that's a full rainbow all the way. Double rainbow, oh my God. It's a double rainbow all the way. Remember this guy, YouTube sensation of 2010? In case you missed it, the gist is, this guy is recording his own reaction to a double rainbow in his front yard. During the course of the three and a half minute video, he's first ecstatic. Oh oh my God, oh my God! Oh my God! Woo! Then weeps with joy and then ponders what it all means. What does this mean? Oh! Oh my God! His video went viral after Jimmy Kimmel told audiences it was the funniest video he'd ever seen. It's so bright! Oh my God, it's so bright and vivid. Currently, the video has over 36 million views. 
I remember when I first saw it, I couldn't stop watching it and sharing it with other people. And here's a confession. It kind of gets to me. I tear up just a tiny bit every time I see it. I'm totally taken into the pure, unabashed emotion of it, the childlike joy. I'm a little jealous. I want to experience rainbows like that. Whoa! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! I always imagined that the double rainbow guy was just a regular guy whatever that means. A a guy just having one of those rare moments, an epiphany. I've had one or two of those in my life. Not quite like that, but I've had them. I imagine that after he had that experience with the rainbows, he went back inside where his kids and wife were eating breakfast. And he didn't tell anyone about it. He just wore a dumb grin all day, feeling a little more alive. It doesn't take much digging to find out who the double rainbow guy actually is. His name is Paul Vasquez. He's a hippie, back-to-the-lander kind of guy who lives near Yosemite and compulsively overshares on the internet. He has a vlog, you know, a video blog, in which he keeps his 40,000 or so followers updated on stuff around his land. I'm trying to plumb this water tank into into my house. I thought about interviewing him, but he's already been interviewed, mostly by himself, a lot. When I shot the double rainbow video, I was alone in my front in my house. I was not on drugs. It was not a sexual experience. He talks a lot about women, the ones he's loved and the ones who have broken his heart. Uh, I mean, it started in January with Crystal and. Um, and continued with Yan and, and Hannah and Dez. He has a website where you can go and book an interview with him, read his latest musings, and even donate. I watch Vasquez's life unfold on YouTube with a mixture of fascination and vicarious embarrassment. I want someone to warn him not to share so much of himself with the world. But every third video or so makes me realize he's doing just fine. In this one that he's scored with the calming Native American flute, he rides his motorcycle through what has to be some of the most beautiful landscape in our country, a huge grin plastered across his face. His motorcycle helmet has a double rainbow painted on it. He stops at a swimming hole, splashes around a bit, and then he meets some tourists who know who he is and want their picture with him. Obviously know who I am. Paul Vasquez clearly wears his heart on his sleeve, and you can tell that it gets him into trouble sometimes. But it's probably that same openness, that vulnerability, that allows him to feel so hard about stuff like rainbows. (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) Mean! Emotionally unstable? Okay, maybe a little. But actually, I kind of think we should all be so lucky. We should all get to have at least one of these double rainbow moments in our lives. Amazingly, Vasquez has replied to many of the hundreds of thousands of comments left on his video 
one of the comments says, I saw a rainbow outside the grocery store the other day and everyone was like, wow, what does it mean? Vasquez comments back, if I have been able to get humanity to now ask what a rainbow means, I have done something in service of spirit. Right on, man, right on. I've infected humanity's soul so that now when anyone sees a rainbow, they think of me, they think, think of my video, they say my words, or they attempt to. Rainbow Squared by Katie Mingle, producer of ReSound. Red and yellow and pink and green, purple and orange and blue. I can sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow. Some people experience rainbows quasi-religiously, while others see them more analytically, as angles and refractions. Well, to make sense of the science of color, it turns out that rainbows are the perfect teaching tool. We join our colleagues at Radiolab, Robert Krulwich and Jed Abumrad, as they discuss whether color comes from within or without, with researcher Mark Shengizi. So one of the sort of debates that became interesting to us is this, where is the color? Is it out there? I mean, is this grape that I'm holding right now, is it red for everything? A bee, a whale, I mean, or is this, does it exist in a, in a way that you could pin down and say it's outside me, or does it only get to be red when it gets in my head? Uh, well, you can, another way, a more severe way to, to ask this, and I ask this whenever I'm giving talks, is just would aliens see it as red? Or, yeah, would, would aliens see it as red? Right, and, and, and the answer is uh, almost surely no. Truth is, says Mark, even your dog wouldn't see it as red. Uh, your dog has color vision. It has blue-yellow and black-white. Really? Yes. So what would the world look like to a dog? I mean, if you've ever known a guy who's colorblind, and 10% of men are colorblind, that's roughly what it's like. Huh. Well, here's a question. If a dog and a human and a crow were to be staring at a rainbow, would they be seeing very different things? Yes. Now, this question that Robert just kind of tossed out during an interview, like about how different creatures would see the rainbow, this ended up taking us down a little wormhole, and we ended up actually getting a choir to help us illustrate uh, what we learned. But just to set a baseline, your normal rainbow goes like this, starting bottom up. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, Roy G. Biff. Roy G. Biff. Yeah, I don't know why people put the I in there, but that's it. If you didn't have the indigo, you couldn't say it, though. It'd be Roy G. Biff. That's why you need the I, I think, yeah. is to say the Roy G. Biff. Yep. That, by the way, is Tom Cronin. Uh, I'm what's called a visual ecologist. Mark suggested we give him a call. He told us that humans see seven colors in the rainbow. In the, in the case of the dog... Very different rainbow. Uh, it's going to start off... Blue. Blue. He'll be able to see blue just fine. So it would see a rainbow starting with blue. Same blue we see. And then grading off into green. Same green as us. And then disappearing. The rainbow would end there. With a tiny bit of yellow thrown in. That's it? Yeah, so the rainbow would only be about half as thick as ours. Wow. 
Um, That's so, a sucky rainbow, dog. Yeah. That's why when God promised that he would never deliver another deluge, and he gave a, he made the promise in a rainbow, the dog's just for totally unimpressed. <laughs> <laughs> and what is it about the dog eye that makes it see this way? It doesn't have red-sensitive photoreceptors, no red-sensitive cones. The weird thing is that the difference between dogs and us, cone-wise, is just one. They have cones tuned to blue and green, so do we, but we have this one extra, red, which doesn't really seem like a big difference. I mean, it's just one cone, but... To have three is so much better than two. That's Jay Knight's vision scientist. Because of this kind of multiplicative thing, red can get mixed with blue. Which makes purple. Or red can get mixed with yellow. To make orange. And green can mix with blue. To get teal or turquoise. And that's how we get about a hundred different shades of color that we can see. So by adding one photopigment, instead of adding just one more color, you actually add about 98 colors or so. All right, let's move on. So now we have a crow, unless you'd like to change right. the bird. Well, the crow is not so interesting because it's pretty much like us. Oh. So let's take a uh, let's take a, uh, something like a um, a sparrow. All right. Because sparrows have ultraviolet vision. What do they see? So they see uh, the rainbow starts before our rainbow starts, where we just see sky. It would see an ultraviolet color, and then it would see the violet, then it would see the blue, and the uh, greens. And the oranges, and the yellow first, and the orange, and, and then the red, and probably would see further into the red than us because they have a more red-sensitive red receptor than we have. So it would see a much broader rainbow. It would start earlier, and it would end later. Woo! So should we assume that we've now that the sparrow is the champion? That that's the that's that's as high as it gets. If you're talking about vertebrates. If no, talking I'm talking about, about anything that has a heart and a mind and a, and a Once you body. leave the vertebrates, then all bets are off. You've got um, many animals have much better color vision than the vertebrates. Do. Oh, really? Yeah. Like what? Butterflies are a great example. Butterflies have five or six kinds of, re- of color receptors. We only have three, remember. Butterflies see more colors oh. than we do? Yeah. So if a butterfly were looking at a rainbow... <laughs> <laughs> I never well, thought we'd uh, get know, here. Right, so, wh- well, they do, I'm sure. I mean, butterflies are out there when, when uh, the rainbows are out. But we see colors we have no names for between the blues and the greens and the greens and the yellows. Ooh. So it would go from ultraviolet, it would see that. Yep. Then it would see violet. And then blue. And then blue, blue, green. Yep. And green, green, bluey, bluey, or whatever. Right. And then orange and red and all that. Yep. They have very complicated eyes. Huh. Okay, so just to recap, All right. here's the dog. Here's us, humans. Now the sparrow. A little bit more bass, a little bit more high end, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And finally, the butterfly. Which is, you know, not so far above the sparrow, but it's got more mids in there. So I'm now thinking butterfli- butterflies get the crown. Yeah, but... Then you, if you go onto coral reefs, you come across these animals called mantis shrimps. What are they called? Meta? Like mantis, like a praying mantis. Oh, oh. mantis shrimp. It, the shrimp catches prey using an arm like a praying mantis has. Oh. Uh, mantis shrimps are, are mostly pretty small, about the size of a finger. Some get to be as big as your forearm. They're uh-huh. big, big oh. animals. I'm actually looking this up right here. <gasps> oh, my God. They're so colorful. No, they are colorful, though. Here, look at this. Oh my no, God! They're, they're just like a—it's like they're electric colored. 
Yeah, yeah they're yeah. like turquoise or something. They're iridescent. And their eyes are like little cartoon eyes. They're gigantic. Yeah, they have two really big eyes right on the front. And you said that dogs have two cones. We have three. How much does the butterfly have again? Butterfly has five. Yeah. Depends on the butterfly. Uh, Mantis shrimps have 16. <laughs> 16? <laughs> Oh well, if you God. have 16... Uh, 16 kinds of receptors. What would the rainbow look like to them? I mean, could they even see it? Manuscript would see the rainbow fine because they live in very shallow water, and so the water is pretty clear, almost like air. Huh. They would start the rainbow way, way, way inside where we see violet. They would see an extraordinarily deep ultraviolet. And then they would go on through several kinds of ultraviolet, probably five or six kinds of ultraviolet. <laughs> And then they would get to violet, which which is now they're reaching our colors, and go through violet and violet, blue and blue and blue-green. Where they have those green, green, blue, blue, blues as well? Yep. And then they would go out into the reds. So they would be about, about as red as us when they got to the red end. But only in the reds? Yeah. What a rainbow that must be. Yeah. They have the most complicated visual system of any animals by a factor of two or more. Wait, wait, wait. But he said any. Do you mean, you mean you mean that unequivocally any? Yeah. No other animal that we know of has a visual system within 50% as complicated. All right, mantis. But, you know, on the other hand, their brains are tiny, so who knows what it turns into. So they may not have the ability to perceive the beauty of the rainbow right. in the way that... No, I don't, I don't, no, they're, they're, vanished from sort of into violence, they're not really into beauty. <laughs> they go around and, and kill things. That's, I mean, really, that's what they do, that's, that's one reason they're so fascinating, is how, how, they how... love to go around and kill things. What, what do they fishes, kill? Uh, crabs, other vanished shrimps, shrimps, octopuses. They'll kill octopuses? Yeah, small ones. A good-sized mantis shrimp will, can break the wall of an aquarium. What, really? Yeah, there's, uh, there's ones in California that can break aquarium walls if they hit it hard. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you have a pugnacious Muhammad Ali seagoing <laughs> exactly. animal with incredibly great visual sense. <laughs> Ripping the Rainbow, a New One by our colleagues at Radiolab. Radiolab is produced by WNYC and distributed by NPR. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. To me, the, the sky is always gray, flowers are always gray, and television is still in black and white. For writer Margie Rockland, the absence of color was the main feature of her ancestral home in Nogales, Arizona. It looked the same for decades, until the day it didn't. My father was born in 1922 in a three-bedroom red brick house on a hill about three miles outside of Nogales, a tiny town on the Arizona-Mexico border. He lived in that same house on that same hill until he was 18 years old. After that, he went to college, then he enlisted in the Air Force, then he went back to college again, which is where he met my mother. When he was 26, he and my mother moved to Los Angeles and they started a family. And eventually Los Angeles became home. But Nogales, it was our emotional center. 
Today, people hear Nogales and they think drug smuggling and border fences and human trafficking. But back then, with my family, it was Mecca. And when I was about 10, during one of these visits, my father led me up to the highest point of the estate, to a pile of stone. And he told me that when he was a little boy, he named this place Lookout Rock. Then he asked me to promise that when he died, I would make sure that this became his final resting place. I'm 10 years old, I told him. Then I begged him to find someone older, someone more responsible to be in charge of something so important. But he shook his head and said no, that he was holding me to my word. And I couldn't tell if he was kidding or not, because that's the kind of thing he'd think was funny. Or maybe he was serious. I never knew he was that kind of guy. By trade, my father was so many things, an architect, an artist, a writer. When he was in his mid-70s, he suddenly decided to become a monologuist, and he toured the country performing a one-man show about his World War II experiences. But as a man, my father was unpredictable. One minute he'd be joking, and then the next minute he'd switch gears. He'd say to total strangers, do you believe in God? What's your vital absorbing interest? In 2002, after a long illness, my father passed away. Some of his ashes were buried at a cemetery in Los Angeles and some at the Jewish cemetery in Nogales. Consensus in my family is not always easily reached, but it was decided that the remaining portion would be placed at Lookout Rock. My family and I drove up the steep hill to my grandmother's property and we started hiking through the dry grass. We found the spot and gathered around the boulders. Is this it? Yep. My mother poured the ashes into a hole that had been drilled into the rock. Well, we can just put it right in. Mom, be careful. Yeah, there's I, a light I, breeze. I have it in, in plastic, in a baggie. Oh, okay. And my cousin David affixed a metal marker over the stone. What do you think? Thank you, though. Then my mother put her hand on the marker, almost as if she were touching my father, and she said, Fred, you are finally where you've always wanted to be, in three places at the same time. Only five months had passed since my father had died, and suddenly we all missed him so much that something happened that I don't normally associate with my family. Silence. Finally, it was time to go home, and as we started to walk down the hill, my mother had one last question. Well, who's going to stay? I, don't, I know Fred does not like to be alone. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to tell you something, something important. Nobody from my family was living on that property anymore. In the early 70s, my grandmother, who was at that point too old to live by herself, moved to Los Angeles, and a string of tenants, none of them very interested in taking care of something they didn't own, lived in that house. And whenever I'd come to Arizona, I'd make sure to drive by the place to see how it was doing. Every time I saw the house, a few more roof shingles were missing, and maybe a few concrete steps had cracked in half. The house seemed to be slowly sinking back into the ground. When it came to what to do with the place, everybody had a fantasy. We could turn it into a great day spa. The house could be restored. We could take turns vacationing there. But the fact was that it would take so much time and money to fix it. That truth paralyzed my family. One day, 
two years after that, my Uncle Abe, who still lived in Nogales, sold the entire estate to a local businessman. I don't know about anybody else in my family, but I was shocked. Suddenly, it was no longer ours to love and ignore. We were still allowed to visit, but when we went there, we were interlopers who'd received permission to walk on the parcel of desert that held not just childhood memories, but something tangible, an actual part of my father. I forgot something else. I forgot to describe to you what this land looked like. To us, what the land lacked in classic postcard beauty, it made up for in these vast, uninterrupted views. It had a sort of romantic, rugged, frontier cowboy quality. But if you saw it, you might not have felt the same way. It was 22 rolling acres of sun-beaten beige desolation. Nothing flourished in the loose desert soil but some native grass and the occasional choya cactus. So keep that in mind, because five years ago, something happened, something amazing. My cousin David called me, and he told me to get on a plane. There was something I had to see. And I've been coming down here, of course, since I was a child, and we've been living here 32 years, and I've never seen anything close to that. So immediately, I had to call you. Within 24 hours, I was in a car bouncing up the rutted dirt driveway with a bunch of my cousins. Nothing could have prepared me for the sight that awaited us. Instead of dry grass and cactus, as far as the eye could see, there were wildflowers. Wildflowers everywhere. Wow. wow. Look at that. So cool. It's amazing. Isn't it crazy? crazy? I know. There were brilliant orange poppies, wild purple heliotrope, and these fragile clusters of pink fluff called fairy dusters. To me, it was as if the location of a John Ford Western had suddenly been transformed to shoot The Sound of Music. I feel like Dorothy, we're, we're going to be like, all suddenly all really drowsy. <laughs> we slowly made our way up to the summit, up to Lookout Rock. Well, Fred Rockland, 1923-2002, was born and raised on this land when it was a 20-acre tract called the Rockland Heights. And he would be amazed to see this today. <laughs> there at the base of my father's headstone, settled in a nest of fuzzy green leaves, was a delicate flower. It was pink, with a stripe of vibrant yellow in its interior. I hate to use the word magical, but that's sort of how it felt. How did it grow in the middle of the dry Arizona desert? There was a single fluted blossom that looked like an orchid, something you'd expect to see on a corsage or stuck in a bride's hair. Here it is, evening primrose, maybe? I can't get over it. <laughs> you have to see it to believe it is. As we were slowly making our way down the hill, we saw a glint of something across the canyon. It was the Border Patrol checking us out with high-powered binoculars. One of my cousins suddenly lifted up her shirt. <laughs> Put your shirt no, down. No. How do you know that they're watching us? They're just watching everything. What did they think was going on? Maybe they were just bored. What I did discover was that most of the flowers were Arizona poppies. It's a summer annual that looks like a five-petaled poppy, but is actually a close relative of the creosote bush. The Latin name is Calistromia grandiflora. Calistromia grandiflora in full flower. 
masses of it. I found this out from George Montgomery. I'm the curator of botany here at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, and I'm in my 31st year of working here. I tracked him down to help me figure out how the wildflowers got there. He told me that a combination of an extended summer monsoon season and high temperatures had awakened seeds that had lain dormant for decades. Several years of drought, greater accumulation of some seed stock, and then the abundant summer rains that year allowed all these dormant seeds to germinate and created just the right conditions for extensive calstromia flowering that year. He also said that what happened on my grandmother's land happened everywhere that summer. We were seeing these calstromias throughout southern Arizona. and Your photographs of the Nogales area were some of the more massive showings that we saw. The more he talked, the more it felt not so magic. Moisture in the ground. He even had an explanation for the orchid. What you're calling an orchid was a devil's claws, the name of it, and can grow in these micro niches by a boulder like this. An outcropping of rock can be a rainfall gatherer, so to speak, a microhabitat. But I still had so many questions. Like, why was the display on our hill so much more spectacular than anything else in the surrounding area? His parched clinical explanation for everything had begun to deflate me. So seven years pass, and I was in Nogales, and I drove to my grandmother's property with one of my cousins. The wildflowers were gone, and it had returned to its original state of dry beige grass interrupted by rocks. You can see they cut a road down here. I guess they were going to build a house there. I know my grandmother's house had been in wobbly disrepair for at least a decade, but the new owner didn't just tear it down. It was like he'd erased it from the property. Nothing was left, not even a brick. There's where the house was right there where those dead trees are. The lot is totally level. They tore that all up. For as long as I could remember, there was the steep, bumpy road that led to the house, a sort of dirt roller coaster that was part of the excitement of visiting my grandmother. But the new owner had closed it off. Now there was a new road that wound straight back just a few steps away from Lookout Rock. The plaque was still there. Uh, Let me see if this is still... Yeah. Well, it's a little bit rocky, but it's not coming out. And right down there was where that orchid was, right? Right, that's right. Yeah. Wow. One of the things that George Montgomery had told me was that if there had been a history of wildfires on the land, it might have contributed to that intense carpet of summer poppies that had sprung up in 2006. Frequent burning would keep plants like grasses from growing, and there would be less competition for sunlight, space, and water. Well, it turns out that either I come from a long line of pyromaniacs or people who just don't understand how fire works. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. Um, Now, have you ever set fire to this hill? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was probably midsummer, tall grass, absolutely parched, wind blowing. I was probably eight or nine or ten. I got some wooden matches and and a little, little fire, which instantly, because of the winds and the dry conditions, turned into an absolute inferno. And I tried stamping it out, and then I got really freaked out because this property is 22 acres. It pretty much went through the 22 acres really fast. And then it jumped the road and started burning across the road, and then it jumped over here. So the whole hillside was aflame. 
So I ran out of the house and I called Mr. Jackson and I was terrified. I thought, oh, I am in so much trouble. And uh, Mr. Jackson came and got out the hose and hosed down what he could. It didn't burn down the house, of course. And I was just crying and I was so scared. And Mr. Jackson said, listen, David, your mother burnt down this hill. Your Uncle Freddie burnt down this hill. Your grandfather burnt down this hill. Your other uncles burnt down this hill. That was pretty much it. And really, to tell you the truth, I didn't catch too much hell when everybody came home because they'd all been there. Remember my father's love of big questions? Well, I have a few big questions of my own. Why am I obsessed with a piece of property that is located 500 miles from where I live? Why do I act like it's somehow the glue that binds my family together? Why did I think that if it was ever sold that we would no longer have a center? When you're so familiar with a particular piece of property, a particular area, and then you see it in a way that you've never seen it before, you know, we'll probably never see it again like that. What happened on my grandmother's land means different things to different people. To George Montgomery, it's a statistic. The sudden presence of wildflowers was just as interesting to him as the years when nothing grew, because together they provide an answer to some much bigger scientific question. And to my family, it's now a part of our shared history, a story to be told to those who didn't get to see the event with their own eyes. Or maybe it has more to do with something that my aunt, my father's older sister, said back then. We had just come back from my grandmother's hill, and we were showing my aunt some pictures we had taken, and we were wondering how this incredible transformation had occurred. And she said to me, maybe your father just wanted to see some poppies. After You Left was produced by Margie Rocklin and Bob Carlson for Unfictional from KCRW. Poppies that bloomed on Margie's hillside were orange. Now, most everyone knows what orange looks like. People may imagine different shades of orange, say pumpkin or tangerine, but a color is generally a color. That is, until it's loaded with more meaning than mere pigment can bear. In a tiny town in the Appalachian foothills of southern Ohio, one family disagrees about who they are at their essence. Lou Olkowski and Al Letson tell the story, starting with the matriarch of the family. I'm good. I have some guests for you. First, I'll introduce you to the mom. Yeah, hey. How are you? Good. Al. Al, this is Clarice. Clarice, Al. Good to meet you. You too. Get your seat. Clarice Shrek sits in her favorite chair by the window. She's smoking a cigarette, keeping one eye on her two grandkids who are watching TV across the room. So what's going on here today? I got a lot to show you. One more thing you need to know here. Clarice has fair skin, very fair, and red hair. I'm getting my birth certificate out to show you what it says that my parents. Okay, this is how it reads. Do you keep this in your purse? Yes. This is something I'm proud of. (laughs) It says, Harley Harris 
And then it comes over and it says, collar or race. And it says, what? What's it say? Negro. It says, Mary Marguerite Simmons. What's it say? Negro. Now, the only black that I really have in me is through my grandpa Bird. Clarice's great-grandfather, making her 116th black. When you are raised from a child up and you're told you're black, you're a Negro, be proud of who you are, what you do, okay? And when my kids were little, I did exactly what my mother did and my father did. I told them that we were Negroes, that you stood up for that name. You, you did not allow anyone to speak badly of you. Okay, so that's Clarice. The other two characters in this family drama are her two grown daughters. My oldest daughter, Carlotta Hickson. Mom had a genealogy book with his picture in it. She'd always pull that book out and go, see, I told you I'm black. She stuck by it. Carlotta will stand and fight to the end. This is my grandpa. I told you I'm black. Now, my youngest daughter, Allison Manning, hmm, that's a whole different story. I'm way too white to be black. Look at my hair. Look at my skin. I mean, really creamy, cream, 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 lots of cream, you know. Um, let's just go really white with that. And I have red hair, really long, straight red hair, <laughs> you know. I look just like every other white girl. There's nothing wrong with being black. But realistically, I am the palest black person that you would ever meet. Allison. She denies the fact that she's a Negro. I always thought I was white, to be honest with you. And you know, and it's so funny because it's on her birth certificate, Negro. <laughs> I was always afraid to say that I was white because you've met my mother. <laughs> my mom is very powerful about how she sees it, but I got made fun of all the time. Like, I was probably in grade school when it started. It wasn't just Clarice who taught her two girls they were black. The whole community considered Allie and Carlotta black. You've gotten to know them really well, so you should just take it from here. Okay. Well, because the girls were from East Jackson, other kids at Waverly Junior High would do things like this. And they came up from behind me and just threw this deodorant at me. And they said, here, we thought you might need this. Don't black people need deodorant? Keep in mind, this is in the middle of class. Everybody is in there, and the teacher's there. Doesn't say anything, just tells them to calm it down. I was a dirty person because I rode the black kids' bus. And over the summer, when I went into high school, I decided that I was gonna transform myself and it was gonna be a new start. I was a chunky kid in grade school, so over the summer, I had dropped a bunch of weight. My hair had grown out a little, you know, I started wearing makeup. And if anyone asks, white, white, white. She came home that night and she said, I had a wonderful day at school. And I said, you did? I said, that's nice to hear somebody that's black tell me that. And she said, I told you I wasn't going as black. And I looked at her and I said, well, I don't know what to tell you when they meet me. They ain't gonna meet you, Mom. I said, oh, yes, they will, sooner or later. And this is where the standoff really begins. Allie passing as white anywhere else would be easy. She looks white. 
But passing is white here, where everyone's always seen her as black? Well, it's... It's a lot easier than you think. Allie found a new crowd of friends who didn't know her growing up. Older kids. I got into cheerleading, and you know, once you get your foot in the door, that's good. Because once I was part of a group, they didn't care. My story was my story. And her story was this. Let's say the other girls asked her, well, can we meet your parents? Well, they're busy, you know, mom's gone on business. Oh, my dad, oh, he works a lot. Great. I have two hardworking white parents and you're never gonna meet them. Let's say a cousin or a kid from East Jackson came up and said, oh yeah, Allie, she's, she's black, just like me, we're related. I'd be like, they're married into the family. I don't even like them. Deny, 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 deny. That's what you do, deny. See, easy. That is until we get to her sister. She was a total, <laughs> a total witch to me, to be honest with you. I would avoid my sister in school just because every time I would talk to her, I'd have to explain who she was. That's my sister. Oh, well, she's black. How's that? How's she black? Allie would say, we don't have same dad, and they got the same dad, or we don't have same mom. She would make up every excuse in the book not to be Carlotta's sister. Actually, Allie would lead a lot of the teasing, or Allie would say things as well just to make herself look good, so she was with the in crowd. I saw her cry so many times because people were making fun of her, you know, calling her the n-word and sad as it is i stood and did nothing she did less than nothing she would help them out because i didn't want to be in that group when they were making fun of me i would just put my head down on the desk and they wouldn't know it but i'd be crying you know that wasn't always easy when they'd throw things at you but was it ellie who made you cry well sure she would Allie was more the type that, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it too. And she wonders why we're not close now. And, you know, you don't forget things like that. You don't forget who made your life miserable. She hated high school. She would never go back if you paid her. And then you have me. And because I stood there and I said nothing, I had a wonderful experience in high school. But what did I sacrifice for it? Me and my sister don't get along. And it's partly, I'm, I'm sure, because of how I treated her in high school. I've tried to mend our relationship, but some things you just can't take back. That was an excerpt of As Black As We Wish To Be, produced by Lou Olkowski with Laura Sparrow for State of the Reunion. To hear the full story and read an interview with Lou, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Oh, there are three primary colors. Only three are primary, it's true. But if you mix the primaries together, brand new colors come right into view. Red and yellow
And now to end the show, a story I couldn't resist producing. After a lifetime of hiding a little secret, I felt it was time to come clean. And what better way to make a colorful confession than on the radio with my good friend and former ReSound producer Roman Mars for his show 99% Invisible. The hotel on the very prominent corner of Tui and Kilburn Avenue in Lincolnwood, Illinois, used to be the town's most famous building. The first Hyatt Hotel in all of Chicagoland. Premier accommodations. Top-notch restaurant. It was swank. Roberta Flack stayed there. Barry Manilow stayed there. Perry Como. Michael Jordan stayed there on his first night in Chicago. And every 13-year-old boy in the area had his bar mitzvah there. The hotel was built in 1960, and it looks it. So if you're wondering how much potentially anachronistic lounge music I'm going to cram into this episode, oh, it's going to be a lot. Then, slowly, over time, it became Lincolnwood's most infamous building. It changed hands, got seedy, and run down. It was the home of the Midwest Fetish Fair and Marketplace Convention. There were drug-fueled sex parties attended by shady Chicago politicians later convicted of things like extortion. And, of course, there was the convicted mobster Alan Dorfman, who was gunned down in the parking lot. But that's not why everyone in the area knows the building. If you know nothing of its history, it's still pretty hard to miss. Because it's purple. Really, really purple. Growing up nearby, I always thought it was really, really ugly. Lots of people did. To be fair, lots of people didn't, but everyone had an opinion about it. But Gwen Maxi, that's who I'm talking to now, by the way, noted essayist and public radio host, and she even created a sitcom once. She has a secret about the Purple Hotel. My father designed it. My name is John Maxi. I'm a retired architect and former professor at UIC. Uh, I designed a lot of... Just the building we're talking about. Don't interrupt. (laughs) I don't have time for the long bio, Dad. Okay, I designed a lot of apartment buildings in Chicago. We're here to talk about the Purple Hotel. I need you to say, I designed, my name is John Maxi, I'm an architect, I designed the Purple Hotel. My name is John Maxi, I'm an architect, and I was the designer of the Purple Hotel. Finally! Now, you have to understand that when I say the building is purple, I don't mean the kind of purple of, say, an iris or a plum. It's purple as in lavender. Lavender purple glazed brick all over pretty much the entire thing. Which, needless to say, makes it stand out. Depending on how you look at it, like a prized jewel or a sore thumb. You know, that's one of the few buildings that if you see it once, you know, it's, you, you've seen it forever. You can't, you know, get the image of it out of your mind. It is so purple that after it changed hands, the new owners renamed it The Purple Hotel. WBEZ architecture critic Lee Bay. I think that it's worth looking at absent the brick. The brick I like, but I wish you could, you know, sort of put on the glasses that can filter it out so you don't see 
the brick, at least in one trip, and really see how the building holds itself together structurally. I mean, I think it's really good. The way that John was able to put those supports on the outside of the hotel to give larger floor plates in the middle, which is what you want. You want, you want big functional spaces instead of, a, instead of a hotel. And then, again, the little nooks of green space and the way the, the sort of the buildings kind of fit together, the complex fits together. I mean, it really, there's, a, there's really a lot of good things going on there. You know, I say come for the purple, but stay for the architecture. The thing that everybody notices first, including architects, would be the color. I mean, I think that if anybody's saying that it's not the color, that they're lying, because you can't really look at the building without noticing that it's purple. So it's the only purple building around, but then, you know, after that initial wave of color hits you, you notice really what a great modernist structure it has and how the structure is expressed on the outside, which is also not something you see every day anymore. And um, I think it's a wonderful building. That was Jackie Koo, founding principal of the architectural firm Koo & Associates. We'll get back to her in a minute. But first, the story of why and how the building got to be so purple. My dad, John Maxi. It was commissioned by the Pritzkers, a very rich family in Chicago. And it was uh, the first Hyatt Hotel in the Midwest. It was called Hyatt House. Had nothing to do with the purple. By the way, the purple came because one of the Pritzkers, A.N., the big man among the Pritzkers in the family, asked me what color glaze style I want to use. And I wanted to use gray. And he said, that's dull. I like something brighter. So I made a mistake of showing him the samples of books having on it some 35, 40 colored samples, and sure enough, he picked the purple. And you don't argue with A.N. Pritzker. (laughs) My father tells me this story, but I suspect differently. He's always gravitated toward bold color choices. Our current argument is over bright orange balconies on a building that we always pass. He loves them, and I hate them. When I was growing up, his favorite color was blue, a color that to me is suspiciously close to purple. In fact, every house we ever lived in, brick bungalow, summer house in the woods, suburban barn-shaped house with mustard-colored siding, all had bright blue front doors that my father painted. My elementary school bus driver used to call me Blue Door. Upon interrogation, my father coughed up his strange Hungarian logic. In the Near East where ultimately I come from, the blue color on the doors, blue and green, is to keep the evil spirit away. So that's the reason I always painted the entrance door of our houses blue, to keep the evil spirit away. And it did. Do you think it worked for the, the hotel? Blue was picked. So you don't think the purple kept away the evil eye from the hotel? Not really, because there was a murder in the hotel. Actually, there were two, but I digress. The beauty of that building is the exposed concrete frame, how the columns are pulled out of the structure, showing this. It's like a human being whose skeleton would be on the exterior, partially. That would be weird, right? Well, that's, that's the way that building is. The columns are pulled out, the slabs are slightly pulled out, It's a building which reveals its structure. 
and that is architecturally the interesting thing about it. The purple is totally irrelevant. It could be green, okay? It, it would be the same good or bad building. So I, as an architect, I have to ask you, um, this is a perfect example of what the, the difference between what the public sees and what the architect sees. Oh, absolutely. Because the public sees purple brick. The architect is sitting here saying the purple is so unimportant in the scheme of the building. Exactly. The, it means nothing. It's just such a tiny thing. But to the public, that's all it is. That's right, because the public is ignorant. <laughs> Truly ignorant. Well, you can't really argue with him there. But in our defense, and I count myself as one of the public in this scenario, it's really, really purple. And despite how far the Purple Hotel fell from its original glory, the dilapidation, the murder, the drug-fueled sex parties, and a demolition order, it was not torn down. Time passed. The economy fell to pieces. Mid-century architecture slowly came back into vogue. Mad Men was on TV. The Purple Brick? was kind of retro cool. A light, however dim, was starting to shine on the building and its future. Then, the Purple Hotel was nominated for landmark status, a place on the historic registry. There was talk of finding a buyer, talk of renovation. And then, while I was searching and interviewing for this very story, the Purple Hotel went up for auction. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance in the beginning of you know, the um, auctioneer yelling and saying, are you ready? And, and, you know, in the booming voice. And then, and then, and then really there was only one bidder, so. (laughs) (laughs) And that bidder was Jake Weiss of Weiss Properties in Skokie, which happens to be right next to Lincolnwood. He bought the Purple Hotel. And while Weiss is a shrewd businessman with a keen eye and good instincts, this particular purchase was also a labor of love. When you have something that really is just not realizing its value and its potential, that has such a prime piece of property, it bothers you. You know, It's part of your neighborhood, it's part of your community, and it's something that you really want to see be an asset to the community instead of a blight. Here comes the love part. Separately from that, when my, um, and more importantly, I think, uh, we almost lived at the Purple Hotel for a period of time. My, um, when my grandfather had passed away and my father was saying the traditional Kaddish. That's the Jewish prayer for the dead. There was no synagogue anywhere in close proximity to where he lived at the time. And because we're Orthodox and we don't drive on the Sabbath, that was a little bit prohibitive to say the Kaddish. Um, there's a very convenient shul right down the block. Also known as a synagogue. Uh, Congregation Yehuda Moshe. So on every single Shabbos for a year, uh, we would move into the Purple Hotel uh, to accommodate my father's responsibility to say the Kaddish for his father. So we lived there for about a year, uh, every single weekend. (laughs) And, um, you know, me and my sister, uh, the hotel was our playground. And the architect Weiss has chosen to redesign the Purple Hotel and bring it back to its original luster is Jackie Koo of Jackie Koo & Associates, also a former student of my father, the original architect, John Maxi. One of the things that we're looking into is more of a historic 
restoration of the building. And it would be wonderful, and especially since we have some of the old drawings, the original drawings from the 60s. And there are a lot of pieces that are still left in the building, such as this wonderful monumental terrazzo stair with this wood wall behind it. I mean, you can really see it as this kind of um, you know, late 50s, early 60s kind of Mad Men era, Pan Am sort of hotel that really could be very current in today's hospitality environment. The culture today, especially in the hospitality market, for some reason purple is a predominant color. Not necessarily in the color of the brick, but in all their marketing. I mean, you'll look at the neon lights and the color of the key fob cards and the brochures that get printed, for some reason, purple is popping, and I'm not quite sure why. Have any of your buildings had this kind of history, this kind of life cycle that you know of? No, none of them. The same way that a person may go through life, and you might go through different cycles yourself, and everybody goes through different rebellious times, and ups and downs. Um, I, I think the same holds true for a property like this that really was a character of itself. The building was really a product of the environment around it at any given time and you know to a certain extent the fact that the building did change with the decades and the environment around it, it, it really is the building's character. And while it's true that this character, this building, this structure of nine lives sits empty at the moment, surrounded by bored traffic and an empty parking lot, it may just be crouching, gathering its muster, ready to spring back to life, arresting that traffic, filling that parking lot, and strutting like a proud peacock. A purple one. Purple Rain, that's R-E-I-G-N, was produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Roman Mars for 99% Invisible. Here's a sad footnote. After all that effort by so many people to see the Purple Hotel be reborn into madman splendor, the redesign turned out to be cost prohibitive. So on a very hot day last summer, the wrecking ball swung back and slammed into the Purple Hotel. For pictures of the hotel in its glory and the demolition, go to 99percentinvisible.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today's episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear nearly 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. 
The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Thank you.